0: Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. Well, good afternoon. My name's Kyle, and um, I have been, I'm the associate pastor at Grace uh, Presbyterian Church in the Woodlands. I've um, been there for 15 years now and have known Taylor for um, quite a long time actually. we start, He started Ranchapalooza, Palooza, uh, the senior high like winter retreat that he and I partnered with each other on and so it's great to be with y'all um, this evening or afternoon, what do we call it? It was morning earlier, and my notes say morning, and I might say that a couple times. Um, But our text for this evening is Mark chapter 10, uh, verses 17 to 31, Um, and we're looking at a story that, if you've been around church much in your life, is probably a a really familiar one for you, Um, the the rich young ruler. And in this story, a young man comes to Jesus, and he sincerely asks him, um, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, But as we'll find out, Jesus doesn't actually directly answer this man's question. Um, And some of us, when we read this passage, we're left puzzled. Um, This guy's sincere, Jesus. Why don't you answer him? Why don't you tell him? But as we'll see, Jesus tries to go after this guy's heart, um, and that's where we're headed this evening. And so as we come to Mark 10, verses 17 to 31, I just want you to think about, like, where is your heart in relationship to Jesus this evening? Like, what do you really love? What do you really desire most in life? So here, the, the reading of God's word given for his glory and for our good. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? Good. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the gospel of the Lord. Lord Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this time together to look at your word. We pray that um, you would meet us in this place, that you would strengthen us, encourage us, Some of us are excited to be here. Others uh, really just kind of wish we were anywhere else but in this place right now. So, Father, we pray that you would soften our hearts, that you would help us to see your love and your tenderness and your mercy for us uh, as we meet with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the um, 1979 is a weird way to start. Um, In 1979, this Russian film came out. It's called Stalker. Um, and in this movie, it tells a story of three men who are on a journey. Their names are Professor, Writer, as in like writer, um, and, and their guide, whose name is Stalker. And Stalker's leading these three men, or these, these other two men, to the zone, and specifically to the room within the zone. Okay, now the room, that's, that's he's, he's told them, it's this miraculous place um, where when you enter into it, you're actually granted your heart's deepest desire, in the room, you get exactly what you want. And so they journey the whole movie. They, they finally get there. And they, when they reach the room within the zone, they, the place where their most cherished desires can come true, they hesitate. It dawns on them that what if they don't really know what it is that they really, really want? Because the room reveals all. What you get is not what you think you wish for not what you should wish for, but what you actually most deeply wish for. And so they're confronted with this disturbing reality that maybe they don't want what they think they really think they want. Um, one person uh, writing about the movie says, "Not many people can really confront the truth about themselves." I think if we're honest, we can really kind of identify with that. If I were to ask you this evening, um, what is it that you really want? What is it that you really long for deep down? What is it that you ultimately love? If you're a follower of Jesus this evening, I think we know the answer we should give, the Sunday school answer, Jesus. Um, we, we know that the answer that we should give, we know what we ought to say, but tonight, would you feel confident stepping into the room? Um, the insight that the room gives us is that our deepest desires are really shown in our daily lives, um, in our daily habits, not necessarily in what we say or even think that we really want. And that really brings us to our text this evening. Um, The rich young ruler comes to Jesus asking intimately and honestly, um, thinking what he really wants is eternal life. But Jesus, through this gracious conversation, he reveals this man's true love, um, his deepest desires, and The reality is is they don't match up with Jesus and his kingdom. So tonight, as we look at this text, what do you love? What do you really, really want? We're going to ask three questions of our text this evening to help us see um, into our hearts and to help us engage with the world around us. So we're going to ask, what do we learn about goodness? Uh, What do we learn about ourselves? And what do we learn from Jesus? So first, uh, what do we learn about goodness from Mark chapter 10? Well, first, who who is this ruler? Um, If you look at the other Gospels, Matthew tells us that he's young. Luke tells us that he's a ruler. And we later find out that this man's pretty wealthy. Um, So that's why he's called the rich young ruler. Uh, And the word for ruler that's used elsewhere in Luke's Gospel, it probably means that he was a leader um, or a ruler in their local synagogue. Um, He's this upright He's a good guy. Um, this is the kind of guy that you would really want to be friends with, that you, you would want to have as your brother or your son. Um, you would want to work with him. You would want your, your daughters or your sisters to, to date and to marry this guy. Uh, this is an overall just really decent guy. And in verse 17, we read, he runs to Jesus. He falls on his knees before him, and he sincerely asks, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, as he often does, responds with a question of his own. He's trying to understand who this is he's talking to, and he's wanting to get this man to be a little bit introspective, to get him to understand what's really going on in his own heart. And so Jesus replies, why do you call me good? And then he goes on to explain his question. No one's good except God alone. The ruler is not trying to flatter Jesus; um, he respects him and he values what he has to say. After all, he runs to him. He shows humility in falling before him. And so, Jesus is implicitly asking the question: What does it mean if you call me good? If only God is good and you're calling me good, what does that mean? That's what I want you to think about. But also, what does it mean to call someone good in general? If, if if we're honest, if someone's called us good, we would gladly take that as a compliment and enjoy the affirmation. But Jewish people at this time, they only referred to God in this way. You would never speak of a human being in this fashion. And so Jesus is pressing this young man. He's pressing us to think about the question, what is true goodness? And then Jesus goes even further and he summarizes the second half of the 10 commandments, the part about loving your neighbor, He says, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, don't defraud, don't honor your parents. Jesus is trying to get this man to to think about his goodness in comparison with God's goodness. And he's attempting to help him think about his own failure to keep the commandments. He might be a really good guy, but he's not as good as God. And that's what Jesus is trying to drive this man to see. The man replies, he hears Jesus' words, verse 21, all these I've kept from my youth. He's basically saying, I'm good, Jesus. I've done that. What else do you have for me? I've got that down. The young man is is not aware of the distance between his goodness and God's goodness. He's not aware that, that he doesn't even really get the law, even though he's a leader in the synagogue and he's supposed to. This young man thinks his goodness is enough to get him in. And if we're honest, it's often how we think about Christianity and how we think Christianity works. If we're good... If we do our best to not break the major commandments, you know, we're, we think, you know, I'm not that bad. I, you know, I'm not like those people over there. I don't do what those people do. Then we think, you know, we're we're good with God, and He has to let us in. After all, we've been really, really sincere in our trying. You know, it's our tendency to default into making Christianity be following this list of rules of doing certain things, of not doing other things, so that we look good so that we look like we have it all together on the outside with very little concern of what's actually going on in our hearts and what our hearts are really after. And for those outside of the church, um, this is exactly what people think about Jesus and what they think about Christianity, that it's all about doing more good than bad and not breaking the, the major laws. But with the law, deep down, what Jesus is really after is our hearts, It's not about the externals. It's not about looking good on the outside. It's about the purity of our hearts. So the law isn't just about not murdering. It's about not hating people, not speaking ill of them. It's about loving them. Adultery isn't just about not having sex outside of marriage. It's about not lusting after someone in your eyes and heart, not objectifying them. It's about loving them. Theft isn't just about, not, or about taking something that doesn't belong to you. It's about not coveting anything that's not yours, whether it's someone's house, someone's car, someone's job, someone's spouse, someone's boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever. And bearing false witness, it's not just about not lying in court. It's about telling the truth all the time in love and honoring your parents. It's about treating them with respect even when they don't deserve it loving and caring for them, serving them and supporting them. So Tonight, think about what would you have said if Jesus asked you this question that he asked the rich young ruler? The reality is, is none of us in this room can say that we've obeyed the full measure of the law. Goodness goes much, much deeper. It's being completely pure in action, completely pure in heart, and only God is good in that sense. This Rich young ruler's limited understanding of who God is, of what goodness really is, um, it's keeping him from having a, a right relationship with God. This man doesn't see his true state. He doesn't see his brokenness. He doesn't see that he's actually broken the first commandment, that you shall have no other gods before me. His biggest problem is his misplaced worship and idolatry. He completely misses the point about God and how, and how good he is. And he replies, no, I'm good. Um, you know, again, tonight, if Jesus asked you this question, how would you reply? I've done all that since I was a kid. I'm not a murderer, not a thief. I don't cheat on my taxes. I'm not a liar. I don't sleep around. Um, I have the catechisms memorized. I go to church a lot. Um, I go to Bible studies. I don't hang out with those people. I, I read my Bible, and I pray a whole lot. Or would we answer, wow, Jesus, I've realized that the law goes much deeper than I ever imagined, and not a day and not a minute even goes by where I keep it at all. So tonight, do we see the poverty of our goodness when it's compared with the beauty and the purity of our God and his commands for us? Or do we think, no, I'm, I'm good. So that's the first one. Second, what do we learn about ourselves? After this young man um, replies, teacher, all these I've done since I was a boy. Jesus doesn't reply to this man. Have you read your Old Testament? Like, I'm not sure that you have. There's, there's no one who is good. Are you sure? In fact, let me tell you something. Your righteousness are like filthy rags before me. Have you been listening to anything that I've been teaching? You're a sinner. You need to repent. You are not good. You need forgiveness. Now, all of that's true, but that's not how Jesus responds to this man. He doesn't go after him directly. He doesn't grab him by his robes and shake him and tell him, you're an idiot. You have no idea what you're talking about. He doesn't shake him for his pride and his arrogance. Um, He doesn't jump to calling this man out on his idolatry. He doesn't jump to shaming him and exposing him and making him feel like garbage. Jesus doesn't think that the louder you shout at someone about their sin, the more direct you are the more convicted that person's going to be about their sin. He doesn't use the Bible as a weapon against this rich young ruler. Jesus knows that no one has ever been shamed into following him. He knows that shame and criticism, which aims to harm and to tear down, it doesn't work as a motivator to get people to respond to a gospel relationship with Jesus. Jesus is, is much more gentle and gracious than I am in, in my approach. He's trying to get this man, he's trying to get us to see and understand our own hearts. Verse 21 tells us what Jesus does. Look at it. He, come, he looked at him and he loved him. It's my favorite verse in this passage. He loved him. Do you know who the hardest people for me to love are? The hardest people for me to be gracious with? Proud, arrogant people who think they're better than everyone around them who think there's nothing wrong with them, who don't see their need and look down on everyone around them. But Jesus convicts me and he corrects me here. What does Jesus do with this man who thinks he's so good, who thinks he perfectly keeps God's law? He loves him. He's not repulsed by him. He's not harsh. He doesn't dismiss him. He he doesn't say you're not worth my time or my energy. He loves him. And so when we come to Jesus, when we see our need, when we come as little children recognizing our sin and our brokenness and our failures, our inability to achieve God's love, he welcomes us. He fills us with his spirit. And this should lead us to mirror the way that Jesus treats people, even proud and arrogant and selfish people. And then Jesus continues, verse 21, one thing you still lack, go sell everything you have to the poor And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. But when the man heard these things, his face fell. He became very sad because he was very wealthy. So don't hear what I'm not saying tonight. Um, Jesus isn't saying if you have money, um, the way you get into heaven is by giving it all away. And that's how you get God to love you. And that's how you, you get him to, to be gracious and and loving towards you. That is not what Jesus is saying at all. Jesus has not gotten this young man to see the brokenness and the depths of need in his heart yet. And so Jesus goes for a different approach. He doesn't explicitly say, have you read the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. Um, But that's exactly what Jesus is getting at with this young man here. He's trying to challenge this man on his wealth. He's saying, you think you're good, but where is your heart? What do you truly love? What do you worship? What guides and directs your choices? Is it the Lord or is it money or is it something else? What do you live for? Who do you love? One of my favorite movies is uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I'm from Chicago, so it makes sense. Um, but there's this awesome scene at the end of the movie um, where Ferris and his girlfriend and their, his best friend Cameron, they've just spent the whole day um, ditching school, going around Chicago, and they've stolen um, Cameron's dad's classic 61 Ferrari Spyder. Um, they get home, and they're trying to cover their tracks. And so they put the car up on, on blocks, and they start running it in reverse thinking because they're dumb high school kids, that the the car, if you drive it backwards, the mileage will go in reverse. Um, and so it's not working. And Cameron, he has this moment uh, where he's fed up with the relationship that he has with his father. And he starts shouting um, and and kicking the bumper of this car because this car is his dad's most prized possession, his most favorite thing in the whole world. And he really has this love affair with the car at the expense of Cameron and his family. And so Cameron's shouting, who do you love? Who do you love? You love a car. And then finally, as he keeps kicking it and shouting at the car, the jack underneath buckles, the car drops and it goes in reverse and it flies out the window and it's destroyed. Um, So the question for us, Who do you love? What do you love? Jesus is trying to get us, is trying to show this young man here, um, you don't really love your neighbor well. You don't love God with all of your heart and soul and strength and mind. And if we're honest, the same thing is true for us. Um, What do you really want tonight? Where are you storing your treasures? Is it in earth or is it in heaven? Are my choices, are they, are they driven by my love for Jesus? Or is it just trying to get stuff? Is it trying to be more comfortable, more safe, more secure, more happy, more fulfilled? Um, the reality is, is every one of us in this room is worshiping something. Um, Augustine says this. He says, idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used and using anything that ought to be worshiped. And that's what this young man is doing here um, in our passage. He's worshiping his wealth, and he's using God to get what what he wants. Um, You know, where do we do that? Where do we use um, what's supposed to be worshiped and worship what's supposed to be used? Uh, John Calvin says this. He says, our hearts are idol factories that are constantly worshiping something other than God. And the question for us is, how do we tell if something really is an idol for us? Well, think about it this way. What's... Um, look in your heart when you get really angry or really upset or really fearful or really, really sad. Um, if you can pull back in those moments, uh, odds are one of your idols is being busted up in that moment. So it's, you know, what are you willing to fight for to get, um, to get it, uh, when you're, when it's threatened, you know, does the thought of having something taken away from you um, make you want to hold on to it tighter? You know, for for some of us, it's it's our kids or our jobs, um, our grades, our our status, our reputation, um, a, a certain relationship, um, a certain our our pleasure, our comfort, our convenience, um, our political views or our cultural views or even our religious views. Um, our power, our authority, our control, um, our reputation. Um, Remember, idols don't have to be bad things. Uh, They can be good things that have become ultimate things for us. Um, Things that we, you know, what do you have to have in order to feel safe and secure? What do you have to have in order to feel loved and significant and whole? Um, You know, for many of us, our hearts are filled with these idols that are keeping us from following Jesus holy. And we need him to step in and to open our eyes to them and have them ripped away from us. So we're going back to Ferris Bueller's day off here. Cameron shows us that in order for a right relationship with his father um, to happen, this idol actually has to be destroyed. Now, in this, this is where the analogy breaks down. God's not the one with the idol, We are. Um, But if we're really going to truly love and honor and serve and follow after our our God, our idols have to be destroyed. Um, Someone once said if until your idols are destroyed, there's no room for Jesus in your heart. So here we see, we all, without Jesus, are lost and incapable of following God's law, um, primarily because we place our value and our importance and our hope and our significance and our ultimate identities on something other than God. And we all need Jesus' love and forgiveness and grace on us. So what do we learn from Jesus here in this passage? Well, the first thing that we learn from Jesus is um, in dealing with the the broken people around us, especially those who think that they're good, um, is that Jesus earns the right to actually ask challenging and penetrating questions. Uh, The moral beauty of Jesus' life um, and his reputation, they drive this man to come with this respect and this humility and this willingness to learn from him. And Jesus doesn't betray that reputation with this man. He's gentle. He's humble. He's gracious. He enters into this man's life. He loves him. He doesn't scold him. He doesn't say, You should know better. He doesn't say, This is really how awful you are. You should know better. He doesn't shame him. He doesn't bully him with the truth. Um, so what we learn is we can't just jump on people and shout loudly at them that they're sinners and that they're sinners to their very core and they need to repent. Even though that's true, without first having their love and their respect, we have to earn the right to to offer affirming critiques, which are motivated by restoring and building up without being critical and without taking the judgment seat, um, which isn't ours to take. We're called to love the people around us the way that Jesus has loved us, the way that Jesus loves them. So it's only when, when family members or, or coworkers or friends or neighbors, when they know that they're loved and that they're valued and that they're safe with us, that they'll come to us with their questions. And then we have to be careful to ask them good questions back. And then we also see that Jesus tries to get people to see the beauty and the character of our God. When we see God for who he is, um, we're more likely to see that, that we drastically fall short. When we show God's beauty and his goodness, the ugliness of sin is more effective than launching accusations and condemning people for being sinners. Conviction has to arise from within that person through the aid of the Holy Spirit, and we don't get to be the Holy Spirit for other people. It's not our job to convict them of their sin. It's our job to show them the beauty and the grace of who Jesus is and let the Holy Spirit do his work. Verse 27, Jesus says, With man, this is impossible. If it's left up to us, we're going to screw it up every time. But he says, With man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. We need him and his help to see his beauty in our brokenness. We're never going to do it on our own. We need Jesus and his spirit to show us how awesome, how beautiful, how wonderful, how gracious Jesus is. And, and what that produces is us falling down in worship and giving ourselves away to him because of it. So part of our calling is in engaging with the world around us, with, with broken people, is to demonstrate and to live out the beauty and the grace of following Jesus, reflecting his holiness and his love, his grace, and his patience, his demeanor with people. We also see that there's no lost causes. Um, we don't get to write off anyone as beyond hope. They're too far gone. There's no help. There's nothing we can do to help them. Especially the proud and the arrogant. Um, the Holy Spirit can move and work in the most broken and discouraging of, of circumstances. And if if we don't believe that, look at us in this room. That's what He has to work with. Every one of us is here because God has been gracious to us in the midst of our failures and our rebellion. But we also learn from Jesus that he's concerned about the hearts of those around him. You know, he really does desire that we love God and we love our neighbor as ourselves. But he wants us to love and to serve because of our love for him. Jesus isn't dismissive of this man because of his bad theology, he's not dismissive of this man because of his self righteousness and his arrogance. But Jesus' words that we read earlier about it being easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, they really sting us, I think, if we're honest. Our idols really get in the way of following Jesus. And that's ultimately what Jesus says to this man. Give your money to the poor and come and follow me. Get rid of the things that are keeping you from me and come after me. Do we believe that God can really set us free from our idols Or do we try to manage them for ourselves? Or worse, do we try to manage them for the people around us? Jesus begins to set us free from our idols by helping us see into our own hearts. He cares for this man. He wants to get to know him. He's deeply interested in him. And he's willing to count the cost of what it will mean for this man to open his heart to him. So if we're to love, if we're to engage, if we're to care for the world around us, We have to be willing to do the same thing in following Jesus here. Um, What we see here is that Jesus is ready to give his life for this young man. And he ultimately does on the cross. When he becomes our sin, he takes all of our idols, all of our lack of goodness on himself, and he gives us all of his righteousness, what Cody had talked about earlier. He gives us all of his perfection all of his status as dearly loved child of the king. And he does all of this while we were still sinners, while we wanted nothing to do with him, while we were lost, broken sinners in rebellion. Jesus comes and gives himself fully for us and to us. And he calls us to mirror his love and his character to those around us. We're called to draw near to the brokenness around us, not to be repelled by it, but to love broken people to give ourselves away to those who don't know Jesus yet, whose lives are messy and sinful and and bothersome because Jesus gives himself away for us. So when we come into contact with Jesus in this passage, we see, if we're honest, we don't really have it all together either. And we fail in every part of keeping God's law. We're prone to put other things in the place of Jesus. Our hearts are idle factories. Our choices and our lives aren't often guided by what does God really want for me, but rather, how can I get more of what I want, what I think I need, what, what makes me happy, what's, what's going to help me? And Jesus loves us. and He deals graciously and gently with us, and he tries to open our hearts to himself and to ourselves so that we can open it to him fully, so we can chase after him, so that we can follow him, the one who looks at us with grace and love who promises that he will give himself up for us, that he will suffer and die on the cross and he will rise again so that we can be his, so that we can be known, so that we can be loved, so that we can be forgiven. And Jesus promises that he will one day return and when we see him, we will be like him and we will be resurrected and given new bodies so that we can follow him fully. We were made to have God be at the center of our hearts and our lives The reality is everything else that we cling to leaves us feeling anxious, discouraged, restless, and hopeless. But Jesus offers life. Jesus offers himself for you this evening. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that you love us. Uh, We thank you that you sent Jesus to die for us, to rise again for us, uh, that you're gracious and gentle with us. Um, We... Know that we're not good, Father, Um, but help that not to discourage us, uh, but to drive us to your arms, um, to run into your hands, which meet us with your warm embrace. Um, When we turn to you, you welcome us, you receive us, you love us. So, Father, we thank you that you are gracious to us, that Jesus really came, really died for us, really rose again for us. And that's how we know that we're loved, because he's done that. So, Father, help us to give ourselves to you and to seek after you this evening. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.